0: Hi, everyone. This Coram episode this month will count for CME credit with ACP. Yay. We will link the exact URL in the show notes. So click on the link, answer three questions and get CME credit. And with that, cue the intro.
1: The more like a, you know, textbook example of that is you have a new patient with nephrotic syndrome, you do a biopsy, and then you find membranous, and then you realize patient hasn't had a colonoscopy in 15 years, and then you made a diagnosis of colon cancer from the nephrotic syndrome.
2: Thank you to Dr. Samira Farouk, who dropped that little nephro nugget. Dr. Farouk is a transplant nephrologist at Mount Sinai, co-founder of NefSim, and co-host of the Freely Filtered podcast.
0: Yeah, you know, that story really gets to my detective diagnostic strings. I think that's what I feel about nephrotic syndrome in general, and it could really make you feel like the Sherlock Holmes of medicine.
2: And with that, welcome to Core IM Five Pearls podcast. This is Dr. Marty Freed, a primary care physician at The Ohio State Wexner Medical Center.
0: And this is Dr. Shreya Trivedi, an internist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center.
2: Today, we are covering Nephrotic syndrome.
0: And today we are joined by our friend, Dr. Clem Lee, a MedSpeed superstar from Penn, who tremendously helped with this episode, along with several others that we're going to mention later. Thank you and welcome, Clem.
3: I am really excited to be here, especially after months of working on this project with you guys.
0: Months it might even teeter to like around a year.
3: It was a labor of love.
0: (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But also, this episode is possible because Core IM has been working a lot behind the scenes with AMBOSS, which is also a medical education platform for all learning levels.
2: And if you're looking for something a little bit more comprehensive than our five pearls, we'll link the AMBOSS article about nephrotic syndrome within our show notes.
0: And I also just want to give a shout out to their evidence-based on-call survival guide and acute management checklist. It's pretty neat. And they also have a free trial on AMBOSS.com if you want to lurk around and see if it's right for you.
2: All right, with that, let's get started on the questions we'll be covering. Test yourself by pausing after each of the five questions.
0: Remember, the more you test yourself, the deeper your learning gains.
2: Pearl one, Urinalysis 101.
0: What are the important features to not ignore on the urine analysis, especially when it comes to evaluating for protein?
2: Pearl two, nephrotic range history taking.
0: So once nephrotic range protein area is identified, What questions are you going to ask your patients to narrow down the differential diagnosis?
2: Pro three, the kidney biopsy.
0: Which patients with nephrotic range proteinuria get a biopsy? And how can you optimize patient safety prior to the kidney biopsy?
2: Pro four, management of the edematous state.
0: What are best practices in managing edema in patients with nephrotic syndrome?
2: And pro five, nephrotic syndrome and the risk of thrombosis.
0: Which patients with nephrotic syndrome are at increased risk of thrombosis and what should we do about it? All right, Clem, let's get started with a case.
3: Sure. So your primary care patient today is a 50-year-old woman with diabetes coming in for a hospital discharge follow-up visit. She was recently hospitalized for pyelonephritis, and at the time of hospitalization, there was a UA that showed whites, leukocytes, nitrites, and some protein. She's doing much better today, and before being roomed, a urine dip is repeated in the office, which shows ongoing 1-plus protein. What should we do with this information?
2: So in real life, the first thing I might do is throw a little shade on the reliability of that point of care urine dipstick there's just something a little not right about that tiny little receipt. I don't know. I, I just don't trust it.
0: <laughs> I, I understand what you mean about that with the receipt, but not so fast there, Marty. There's actually some interesting data to suggest that the automated dipstick is fairly accurate. There's actually one study that shows a, a pretty nice correlation between the more protein on the urine dipstick, the higher the likelihood that the protein creatinine ratio is one gram or more.
3: But while there's a pretty good correlation, the test probably isn't good enough to ignore low levels of protein on the UA. I've heard nephrologists say that even they can get fooled by it.
1: I've definitely seen cases where a plus one proteinuria turns out to be nephrotic range proteinuria. I think one nice way to think about the urinalysis protein, which is reported as usually a plus one, plus two, or plus three, is more of a screen rather than a quantitative test. And so I think when we see a plus one versus a plus three. To me, I, I just see that as proteinuria and, and I want to know exactly how much there is. When the urinalysis is negative for, for protein, um, I feel pretty confident in the, the performance of that test. But I think anything more than that, anything that's in the positive range to me warrants a little bit more investigation in quantification. Yeah, you know, I can't speak to the number of times
0: I've seen teams or even myself kind of brush off plus one plus two proteinuria thinking, oh, you know, it's dehydration or some transient proteinuria. But okay, if we should be thinking about protein on the UA as more of a screening test, then what's the next step to quantify that protein a little bit more?
2: Yeah, so that's when you want to reach for the spot urine protein to creatinine ratio, sometimes shortened to the UPCR. A.K.A. the UpCur. <laughs>
0: is that how people say it? The uh, UpCur. No. <laughs> <laughs> All, right. All right.
2: Listen, sometimes you'll hear nephrologists talk about the urine albumin ratio. The important thing to consider for this is that the albumin ratio is actually going to miss urine light chains. And you worry about that in the setting of things like myeloma kidney. So for that reason, some folks prefer the UPCR or the UPCR, the protein ratio, for that reason.
4: If we could have a reflexive test that every time you have a trace or any 1 plus, 2 plus, 3 plus uh, proteinuria on a dipstick, you automatically get that ratio because I think that ratio is very important to quantify that.
2: And that is Dr. Matt Sparks, the APD for Duke Nephrology. He is also on Freely Filtered Podcast and is the co-creator of the famous Nef Madness competition.
0: All right, so maybe one day Dr. Sparks' dream of getting a protein cranny ratio reflex test will exist, but for now, how do we optimize that urine protein cranny ratio
3: collection? So you'll want to tell your patients to get it collected in the morning if possible. This is a throwback to our albuminuria episode, since there can be transient orthostatic proteinuria, that's lesson when the patient's been lying down all night. And when you do get the results back, pro tip, take a peek at that specific gravity.
4: I can't mention one interesting tidbit. So I usually look at the uh, specific gravity and sort of, uh, eh, you know, what is the use of that?
2: Oh man, I am so happy to hear that I am not the only one who thinks
4: that. All right, go ahead, Dr. Sparks. What's funny was recently I was doing some board review questions and we had this exact issue of specific gravity. The question was about a young woman with lupus. Everything about the patient seemed quite stable on the question stem. Even the amount of proteinuria only increased from trace six months prior to one plus. The part of the question that you might have just skipped over was actually the specific gravity. But in this question, It was important to recognize that the second sample was much more dilute than the first sample. This was underestimating the amount of proteinuria, and the answer to the question was to do a 24-hour urine collection.
0: Now, that is a tricky question, but it sounds like concentrated urine is going to falsely elevate the protein in the urine, and then dilute urine is going to falsely decrease the proteinuria.
2: Great. So when we're interpreting the UPCR, what numbers get nephrologists really jazzed up about the possibility of actually
3: finding someone with nephrotic syndrome? So for nephrotic range proteinuria, the magic number is 3 to 3.5 grams a day. That's a little bit different than nephrotic syndrome, which is nephrotic range proteinuria, but also with low albumin and peripheral edema. Sometimes there can also be hyperlipidemia and thromboses, but not always. All right, so
2: that's it for Pearl One about urinalysis basics. Think about proteinuria on a UA as a screening test that should make us consider further quantification with the urine protein to creatinine ratio, also known as the UPCR. And don't (laughs) overlook the specific gravity either, because that gives you an even stronger indication for quantification. So for example, if you're seeing protein on the UA despite a low specific gravity or a dilute sample, once you hit that three to three and a half grams per day of protein, On the ratio, your patient is now in the nephrotic range. And the next line of questioning and evaluation is really geared towards evaluating for the nephrotic syndrome, which Clem beautifully summarized is nephrotic range proteinuria with low albumin and edema.
0: So back to our patient. Now that we know that we're not just going to disregard her UA thinking, oh, it's transient or she was in the hospital with pylo. We can either repeat the UA or get a urine protein creatinine ratio.
3: So we end up sending the UPCR, and her ratio ends up being 3.5 grams of protein per day. Oof. Yeah. That's no bueno. <laughs> During her last visit with you, the routine BMP and annual urine albumin to creatinine ratio for diabetes were completely normal.
2: Dun dun dun. Shrey. How much do you want to bet this lady is going to have nephrotic syndrome? <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, I, I think there is a strong chance on this episode on nephrotic syndrome, Marty. I think that it could happen. Um, but before we can actually call it nephrotic syndrome, we have to assess for low albumin and edema. And most importantly, we have to put our thinking caps on.
1: So usually for our initial workup, what we're really thinking about is, does this presentation really fit more in the bucket of nephrotic syndrome, or is it more a nephritic syndrome type picture? There's a lot of overlap between the two, but we can really identify patients that have a pure nephrotic syndrome by looking at the urinalysis. A pure nephrotic syndrome should not really have hematuria, we shouldn't see pyuria or the presence of white blood cells in the urine. It's really just overwhelming proteinuria.
2: And just to amplify what Dr. Farouk is saying, in this podcast, our laser focus is the nephrotic syndrome.
3: Yeah, we're not talking about any of the nephritic or nephritic-like syndromes. So nothing with dysmorphic RBCs or casts, or even worse, ugh, crescents. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we don't yeah. like crescents.
3: Leave your crescents at home.
1: So if we're thinking about pure nephrotic syndrome, you want to think about either primary or secondary causes of membranous nephropathy, FSGS, or minimal change disease.
0: All right. I really just appreciate having three things to start off with and, and focus on the differential because I don't know about you guys, but I feel like every time I'm sitting in a presentation on nephrotic syndrome, it's just like a bunch of rapid fire slides on each type of nephrotic syndrome and nothing really sticks. Has that has that happened to you? mm yeah, so I feel like it's just a little relieving for me to hear that, okay, I can start with three potential buckets, minimal change, FSGS, and membranous.
3: The alphabet soup of nephrotic syndrome is pretty intimidating, but Dr. Farouk had a bit of practical advice for us.
1: So for all these cases, ultimately, it will come down to the kidney biopsy findings to help us with what is a pathologic pattern. And then we have to try to understand whether or not this is a primary or secondary process. And that assessment in my opinion, really comes from that history. Getting that history and trying to distinguish whether or not these glomerular diseases that are causing nephrotic syndrome are primary or secondary is where the medical team can really play an integral role because this has important implications for treatment. For patients that have primary glomerular disease, we're looking at high-dose immunosuppressive therapy, whereas in a patient with secondary glomerular disease, the treatment, like anything else in medicine, would be treatment of the underlying condition.
2: Yeah, so the reality is that most of these patients are probably getting a biopsy. And what Dr. Fruke is saying here is that often the way you diagnose primary glomerular disease is if they don't have a secondary cause. And that is established with a good history and a focused workup.
0: All right, so let's make this more practical, especially for people like me, where none of this has really stuck before. And let's think about when you're going down to the emergency room to admit a patient or you're in clinic, with each of these, what should we be asking for and assessing for? Especially if we're trying to get at what's that underlying secondary process that's causing all that protein to leak into the urine.
2: Yeah. All right. Let's start with minimal change disease. This is the one that I typically think about as a pediatric issue. So how do we think about it in adults?
1: typically the one that has the classic full blown dramatic nephrotic syndrome presentation within a few days or even a few weeks that would be minimal change disease. So commonly patients may come in a few days ago they were feeling okay and now they've come in with anasarca, nephrotic range proteinuria. So when we see minimal change disease particularly in an adult, we're thinking about secondary causes while primary is possible, it's probably a little bit less likely. And so important secondary causes of minimal change disease include hematologic malignancies. We should also be thinking about drug-induced minimal change disease. Commonly used medication are non-steroidals. And so though we classically learn in medical school that this is associated with acute interstitial nephritis, this is often accompanied by an entire nephrotic syndrome.
3: Okay, so the big takeaways from minimal change disease, it's mostly found in kids, but adults can have it too, usually in the setting of NSAID use or Hodgkin lymphoma. But keep in mind that if you don't find anything, you've actually found the most common cause, which is idiopathic.
2: So let's move on to FSGS, or focal segmental glomerulosclerosis. A pathophys pearl here is that minimal change and FSGS are similar pathologically. They both are podocytopathies for you future nephrologos out there. (laughs) Um, The two can basically be thought of as occurring on a spectrum. So just tuck that away for a little snack later.
1: FSGS can sometimes be the hardest one to differentiate between primary and secondary, even for pathologists, because many of the features are overlapping. And the other complicating factor is that many other causes of kidney injury, including other glomerular diseases, can end in an FSGS-type picture because end-stage kidney disease essentially are glomeruli, which is what we see in different stages of FSGS, particularly at the end.
2: And because we can't just rely on the biopsy, this is really where the history is going to help us out here.
1: And so it's really important in those patients to kind of have a better understanding of the time course, the full history. And common secondary etiologies of FSGS are diabetes, hypertension, obesity.
2: And another secondary etiology to point out, I remember as a terrified new attending, there was a patient with congenital solidary kidney who developed nephrotic syndrome. And the renal attending at the time used the term adaptive FSGS, which is a term that at the time I'd never heard of.
0: Yeah, what's He was that? referring
2: to the, yeah, he was referring to the hyperfiltration related injury that eventually can lead to FSGS.
1: We know that patients that have needed a nephrectomy in the past often develop focal segmental glomerulosclerosis in the other kidney due to what we call hyperfiltration injury. So the idea is that you take out the one kidney, but then the other one is kind of dealing with an increased filtration load. And so I think that a similar theory is thought to be playing a role in obesity and that you kind of in general have this hyperfiltration because of increased body mass and size. And this leads to a large glomerulus or glomerulomegaly.
0: I am continuously amazed at the impact of obesity on the body, even on our poor little glomeruli. (laughs) Squeezing (laughs) them. Yeah. But so what are the other systemic things that can lead to FSGS?
3: Oh, there are so, so many. Remember that FSGS is a pathologic diagnosis, a common endpoint to many, many disease processes. Heads up, Dr. Farouk is about to drop a lot of knowledge, so try to catch as much as you can, and it's always fine to go back and look it up again.
1: Some of the more common ones are HIV, which we've mentioned, parvovirus, though many other viruses have been implicated even if only in case reports, for example, CMV, and more recently COVID-19 has been associated with secondary FSGS. There are many commonly administered drugs like bisphosphonates that can cause a very dramatic collapsing FSGS. Heroin use, interferon use can also lead to glomerular injury in an FSGS type picture.
4: I think the other thing with FSGS is very interesting is the familial or inherited FSGSs, which are very rare. But getting a family history and seeing that you have pretty high prevalence of kidney disease, um, in a
3: family and try to understand if it's an autosomal recessive versus autosomal dominant pattern. Okay, so big takeaways for FSGS is to look for, one, the metabolic syndrome, including obesity, diabetes, and hypertension. Two, to look for scary viruses like HIV and even SARS-CoV-2. Three, to look for a family history of FSGS or patients with solitary kidney. And lastly, looking for certain drugs like heroin or bisphosphonates.
0: So let's, let's finish up the big three with membranous nephropathy. And unlike the other nephrotic syndromes, membranous is a pretty nice antibody to keep in your back pocket to distinguish between primary versus secondary.
1: The phospholipase A2 receptor is present on the surface of the podocyte. So in patients that have antibodies against that, they're going to have an antibody that's going to be directly attacking that podocyte and causing injury. A positive titer of that antibody, which can be easily measured now, is an antigen in the podocyte would be strongly indicative of primary membranous nephropathy.
0: So honestly, I didn't know how strongly the data was for a positive antibody titer for phospholipase A2R, and it's linked to primary membranous nephropathy. It's kind of nice in medicine when we can get some clear answers, but say our patient has a negative phospholipase A2R antibody. What should we be assessing for in terms of a secondary process that could be causing membranous nephropathy?
1: Screening for for cancers that would be age appropriate. So for example, colon cancer screening, breast cancer screening, lung cancer screening in an active smoker. Um Hepatitis B is classically associated with membranous nephropathy. Common infection that's associated with nephrotic syndrome is syphilis, can cause a secondary membranous nephropathy.
4: And if you did all of that, you would have a massively nice letter for your fellowship from nephrologist. <laughs> that would, I, and you would just be like, this, that's an amazing workup right there.
2: Boom, you heard it first. Listen to the podcast, drop an amazing workup for a patient with nephrotic syndrome, and get a letter of recommendation from your local nephrology team. Feel free to cite Dr. Matthew Sparks in his corian <laughs> debut when you tell all of your friends.
0: <laughs> okay, well, maybe you don't cite Dr. Sparks there. But yes, listening to Dr. Farouk's membranous workup is a thing of beauty, especially because you don't want to start treatment on someone and find out later that there was some other treatable process that could have led to podocyte repair and resolution of that nephrotic syndrome. So to recap, with membranous nephropathy, we're going to be sending off that anti-PLA-2R antibody, as it'll probably be referred to in your uh, medical record system. We'll also be checking for age-appropriate cancer screening, and then looking for a few STIs like hepatitis B, syphilis. And then one thing that wasn't mentioned, lupus.
2: Can't forget lupus.
0: Really can't go wrong tagging lupus at the end of any sort of differential.
2: Okay, and besides minimal change, FSGS, and membranous nephropathy, we really shouldn't forget about three other really important
3: causes of nephrotic syndrome. First is amyloidosis. Next is preeclampsia, which I specifically went into medpeds to not think about.
0: (laughs) That is a good point. You will not see preeclampsia there. Um, And then last but not least, the most common cause of nephrotic range proteinuria
3: Diabetes.
0: diabetes yes yes yes
2: <laughs> it's kind of amazing it took us this long
3: to mention that okay let's summarize this beast of a section okay guys i got this all right i don't know if i got this guys
0: <laughs> no worries marty i got you so practically speaking for minimal change we're going to be asking about B symptoms and about over-the-counter med use with sets. for fsgs we're also going to be looking at the med list but for bisphosphonates We're going to ask about substance use history, family history of renal problems. Think about metabolic syndrome playing a factor. In terms of viruses, pretty much nowadays, everybody's getting a COVID brain massage, so I'm not worried about that, but I'll make sure to add on an HIV screening. Um, If they have one kidney or are obese, think about hyperfiltration injury related to FSGS. And then the last one, almost there, is membranous. And so to put that higher or lower on the differential, I'll likely get an phospholipase A2R receptor, think about hepatitis B or syphilis, and ask about age-appropriate cancer screening. Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest, between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals right to your door, ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from Calorie Smart to Protein Plus to Keto. And don't forget, they have 60-plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites so you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital's <laughs> cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouth-watering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With Factor, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash 50 Use the code coream50 to get 50% off. That's the code coream50 at factormeals.com slash 50 all right, Clem, let's keep going with our case. What happened to uh, Miss Anna Sarka?
3: <laughs> <laughs> Do we call her that before? We have not. <laughs> we just,
0: we're, we're now on just, a first name basis. She's <laughs> or a second name basis. Yeah. No.
3: <laughs> so our patient denies any family history of kidney disease. She denies illicit drug use, and she's not on any medication other than metformin. She's monogamous with her wife, And she just recently got her colonoscopy, which was normal. So we refer her for a kidney biopsy. So listening to Dr. Farouk and The Last Pearl, am I the only
2: one channeling Oprah here? Kind of like the, you get a biopsy,
0: you get a biopsy, everybody gets a biopsy! Oh my goodness. Yeah, someone's going to make a meme about this.
2: (laughs) No doubt. All right. So I I remember I had this old school, amazing nephrologist in residency tell us that he was taught only to biopsy to confirm the diagnosis you suspect and not to go fishing, which is a definitely different strategy than what we're learning from Dr. Farouk and Dr. Sparks here. And I just think it's interesting to point out how far we've come. But anyway, Clem, talk to me
3: about what the guidelines say about biopsying specifically for proteinuria. Yeah, so the National Kidney Foundation mentioned a few indications including proteinuria over one gram a day on multiple visits, or greater than three grams a day even just once. The caveat here is this is in patients without diabetes.
0: Okay, that sounds good. But realistically, (laughs) uh, most of our patient panels are patients with diabetes that have some proteinuria. So where's the guidance in terms of who to biopsy in diabetic
1: patients? Classically, we usually say that diabetic retinopathy should precede diabetic nephropathy. So if you have a patient that does not have retinopathy, or another way to ask the patient is to ask them if they've ever had laser treatments to their eyes, maybe think about another cause of glomerular injury.
3: Despite that classic teaching, Dr. Farouk did also point out that in real life, a large number of patients, up to 30%, can actually have nephropathy before their retinopathy. So don't live and die by these rules. Unless
0: you're taking step one, then it's law. Go ahead, memorize diabetic retinopathy (laughs) happens before nephropathy.
4: There's definitely situations in clinic where you'll follow some individual that has diabetes, and they've had it for a while, um, but they don't have retinopathy. They don't have peripheral neuropathy, but they have like eight grams of proteinuria. And to me, I look at that as a, you know, I want to know if there's anything else that's happening with this patient that I could potentially help preserve kidney function. And so... Uh, Even though the biopsy might end up showing diabetes and diabetic nephropathy, it puts me a lot at better ease to say, all right, you don't have uh, XY or Z glomerular disorder. You do have diabetic nephropathy, but occasionally you'll find something that just you never would have even imagined.
0: Okay, so it sounds like eight grams of proteinuria is too much for classic diabetic nephropathy. But one gram of proteinuria is not enough. So when exactly does diabetic proteinuria cross into that too much got a biopsy realm?
1: I think overall, diabetic kidney disease is grossly under biopsied. Mm-hmm. So I think we just don't really know what we're dealing with, especially when it comes to earlier disease. When is the proteinuria too much? I think like anything else in medicine, it's kind of the change.
4: So it's that delta change that's very important. Uh, so someone having uh, 300 milligrams per deciliter of a protein and then all of a sudden has two grams can be a significant finding. Whereas another individual that's had six grams for years might not be uh, at, um, you know, as a big of a deal. So you have to sort of look at each patient separately and the number uh, might be, you know, arbitrary and you
0: get a biopsy, and you get a biopsy,
4: and
0: everybody gets a biopsy. <laughs> 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 oh, gosh, Marty. Um, Memes are coming your way. <laughs> but the takeaway here, or at least what I'm taking away, is that diabetic nephropathy usually progresses gradually over time. It can take years, whereas some of these other primary secondary causes of, of nephrotic syndrome, you'll see a bigger delta jump over time in proteinuria. But it sounds like there isn't really clear guidance or a magical delta number
3: to guide us. So that about wraps up diabetes. Another group of patients to biopsy early are those with minimal change disease who don't get better with steroids. Remember what Marty said earlier about minimal change and FSGS being related? You might think you're dealing with one of them, but you're actually dealing with the other.
1: There is... discussion that there's maybe a spectrum that goes from minimal change up to FSGS and that even though your biopsy specimen looks like minimal change, that you maybe just missed one of those sclerotic lesions. Because for the diagnosis of FSGS, you really just need one sclerotic lesion in one glomerulus to make that diagnosis. So, there may be a significant contribution of sampling bias. So, if we have a minimal change disease patient that we expect to improve and they don't, um, the threshold will be pretty low to consider a second biopsy to confirm the diagnosis.
2: Clem, you're not leaving this podcast until we freaking biopsy your kidneys.
3: (laughs) Marty, (laughs) what are you doing with that 18-gauge needle? Oh,
0: hey now, hey now. Uh, You know, there will be no RP bleeds on my watch. But all this biopsy talk brings up the elephant in the room. How safe are kidney biopsies?
1: In general, I would say that kidney biopsy is a safe procedure. And the complications that we're worried about are risks of bleeding. What is what the complication rate? Um, what I tell my patients is that the rate of a bleed is probably less than one, 1 in 100 to 1 in 1,000. And the rate of a bleed that requires a procedure is even lower than that. And the rate of a bleed that's going to lose that kidney is, is, is minuscule.
0: You know, I got to be honest, I was a little surprised hearing nephrologists talk about kidney biopsies being so safe. I think maybe it's because we've all been scarred here and there by an M&M conference of a biopsy that led to retroperitoneal bleeding or some other complication.
3: I mean, if you think about it, a little bit of bleeding is not unusual. After all, you are putting a needle into the kidney.
0: Right, right. So 100% of people are going to have some microscopic hematuria.
3: (laughs) Right. But fortunately, most of the bleeding that occurs is self-limited, and significant bleeding requiring intervention is rare, less than 1%.
0: So I guess the next question is, how are we going to maximize safety for when we do get that biopsy?
1: One is to control the blood pressure. Um, So we would avoid doing a kidney biopsy in someone that is hypertensive, that would increase their risk of bleeding.
2: And Dr. Sparks ran through a little pre-biopsy checklist he thinks about early on in a hospitalization for patients he believed might need that 18-gauge needle of truth.
4: What's their INR? What's their platelets? Uh, what anticoagulation are they currently on? And what do we need to stop in order to prepare them for that? Can they lie flat? Because if they're way volume overloaded, we need to start working on getting that under control with diuretic. And sometimes we even need to
2: do pre-biopsy dialysis if someone has a BUN that is through the roof.
1: If you have a patient with acute kidney injury that's azotemic, um, their platelets may actually be dysfunctional. So for example, if my BUN, my patient's BUN is over 80 or 100, then maybe I require two dialysis treatments before I feel comfortable. But we know that BUN is not you know, 100% marker of azotemia. It's just, you know, something that we use. And so it doesn't mean that if my BUN is less than that, that I don't have dysfunctional platelets.
0: Noted. I will take a peek at the BUN, usually a neglected lab, or as Uncle Bob would call it, an unremarkable lab. But either way, if we're considering a biopsy, we'll probably be looping in our nephrology friends. They're probably better at having that risk-benefit ratio with the patient for the biopsy. And helping us think through some of the safety considerations.
2: Ha, I am more than happy to let them have that conversation. All right, Clem, bring this pearl home with a summary.
3: The indications for a kidney biopsy in patients without diabetes include proteinuria of one gram a day over multiple visits, or three grams a day even just once. In patients with diabetes, you're really looking at the change in protein over time and correlation with other microvascular complications. The rates of bleeding after biopsy are around 1%, and we can optimize patient outcomes by controlling blood pressure around the time of biopsy, considering pre-biopsy dialysis, and holding anticoagulation whenever possible.
0: So unfortunately, while our patient was waiting for her kidney biopsy... She was so uncomfortable with her swelling that she actually ended up going to the emergency room and got admitted for volume overload.
2: Yeah, the problem with patients with nephrotic syndrome is that our loop diuretics often just don't work as well.
1: In patients with nephrotic syndrome who may have poor delivery of diuretic because of impaired kidney function or even due to low oncotic pressure, as albumin is necessary to be able to secrete the loop diuretic into the tubular lumen. We usually start with relatively high doses of loop diuretics
3: so we need the albumin to get the Lasix to the loop of Henle to do its magic. But in nephrotic syndrome where patients have low albumin, that Lasix isn't getting there efficiently.
2: Right. Which begs the question, why don't we just give the old albumin Lasix chaser? I mean, who isn't guilty of having done this once or twice in residency, right? You give the three patient three times. <laughs> uh, right? You give the patient a whiff of albumin, you beef up that oncotic pressure and then chase it with furosemide to kind of catch the albumin wave straight down into the loop of Henley.
1: Albumin, short answer is no. There's no data to support the use of albumin-assisted um, diuresis. Um, there's been a lot of talk about this on, on social media. Some of the most compelling tweets are those that say that if you do that, all you produce is very expensive urine.
3: From my reading, it seems like albumin is pretty controversial. And while there is a short-term benefit of a few hundred cc's more urine output, that effect isn't really seen in the long term. So it seems like albumin Lasix in nephrotic syndrome isn't totally worth it, especially from a cost perspective.
0: Yeah, that expensive urine, huh? I don't know, it's a, it's a little <laughs> bummer. I was hoping something could help us out. Maybe does how we dose Lasix matter?
3: I mean, so even in healthy people, Lasix is not very bioavailable. So if you're dealing with patients with nephrotic syndrome, where they have gut edema, you'll want to use intravenous Lasix. And since the onset of action is so quick, you can dose it up to two or three times a day.
0: Yeah, and I guess on top of just higher frequency, we'll also be just reaching for higher doses of diuretics. That kind of makes me worry, I don't know about you guys, but like the side effect of ototoxicity that we learn so much about in med school.
4: I have never seen it. And I think one of the things is we just don't typically use as high of a dose as when it was seen.
0: Okay, it's a little relieving to hear that the nephrologists haven't really seen it, that it's rare, and studies show actually that it's reversible. Though the fear is real, and I think some clinicians actually in their practice, they'll reach more for the continuous infusion over time, so that patients with nephrotic syndrome aren't being exposed to those high, high bolus doses.
2: All right, so that's it for diuretics. What about other tips for helping our patients manage their edema at home?
4: I'm really big on daily weights. And so I want to teach them how to titrate their loop diuretics with my help. The other thing that I've found is very helpful is a food diary. I think what it does is it forces a person to really think about what they're eating. Because if they don't write it down, they basically believe they did not eat it.
1: I think the number one concern for patients with nephrotic syndrome aside from, um, you know, medications that we may be, be prescribing is really kind of restriction of salt.
3: There's a patient friendly handout from the National Kidney Foundation that lists high salt foods and what to replace them with.
0: Yeah. And there's also an infographic I really like from the American Heart Association and, and also their website's really helpful. We'll link it in the show notes. And the reason I think it's great is because it goes through offenders that patients don't usually think of, like bread. Especially yeast bread or cheese that can really add up in that salt intake.
2: Oh man, bread and cheese and salt—it's like all all the good stuff. <laughs> all right, all right. So let's let's not forget that probably the best treatment for these patients who are struggling with edema is to actually treat the underlying disease process.
4: Well, one of the things you'll see is it's absolutely a, a miracle is when you have someone with like let's say membranous. This is a patient that I had that was just anisarchic and just miserable, couldn't even move. And we tried high-powered cyclophosphamide and prednisone, and I got admitted one time, they were so volume overloaded, and then we, uh, and this is anecdotal, but we gave rituximab, and then it was like, just the floodgates opened, you know? And the patient just, uh, it, was, it was like they're walking on water. They just absolutely, it was like a, they, a new person was born. So that's why like getting the diagnosis and treating it is going to be a lot more effective than your diuretics.
2: Oh, that is a fantastic story. All right, I
3: think we should probably leave this pearl off here. Clem, do you want to summarize it? Basically, you treat the edema due to nephrotic syndrome like how you treat other third spacing diseases like congestive heart failure and cirrhosis. Loops are going to be your friend. But remember, since Lasix is highly bound to albumin, you'll likely need higher doses and in an IV form forget pre-gaming with Albumin, and coach patients at home on how to be successful with daily weights and low-salt diets. Clement, kind of sounds like you want a biopsy. Sign me up, man. Or as nephrologists <laughs> say, F-S-G-YES.
0: Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs>
3: nice. <laughs>
0: All right, guys, let's minimally change gears here and talk about for a brief minute thrombotic complications of nephrotic syndrome. Yes. And
2: heads up, folks, we are about to get dangerously close to an evidence-free zone here. Thrombosis and nephrotic syndrome is definitely one area of management that we are still figuring out.
3: But Clem, what do we know? So, we know that all patients with nephrotic syndrome probably have an increased risk of both arterial and venous thromboses, and that this risk is almost definitely, probably, most likely greatest in patients with membranous nephropathy.
0: Okay, okay, I get it. It's about membranous nephropathy. And this is also a good one to keep in your back pocket and just be aware of because it's a classic boards question. Anything else we should know about clot risk and membranous nephropathy?
3: Yeah, the risk appears to be inversely related to the level of albumin, meaning that as the serum albumin drops, the clot risk increases.
2: All right, so what are we going to do with all this risk?
0: Well, the evidence is thin, but what most people agree on is that patients with idiopathic membranous nephropathy and a low serum albumin, typically less than 2.5 milligrams, get prophylactic anticoagulation.
3: Right, but another conundrum is which prophylactic blood thinner to use. Typically, DOACs are not used and we favor warfarin or low molecular weight heparin, but this is mostly because of the data that we have. So the big takeaways for thrombosis and nephrotic syndrome are that one, thrombosis is more likely in patients with membranous nephropathy, especially if they have low albumin, and two, if we're going to anticoagulate, we can use warfarin or low molecular weight heparin.
2: All right. Very good.
0: And that is a wrap for today's episode If you want to learn more about nephrotic syndrome, check out the corresponding article at amboss.com. We'll link it in our show notes. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with your team and colleagues. Rate it on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help people find us. And if you want to add your own tips, share your own challenges with nephrotic syndrome, tweet us, leave us a comment on the website, on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you to Dr. Raul Mashwari for the accompanying graphic, to Solon Kelleher for editing this last minute. Also, while working a poll day, (laughs) uh, to our peer reviewers, Dr. Swapnil Hermoth, uh, Dr. Garen Hobby, and Dr. Tejas Patel. And thanks to Dr. Mary Guan and Dr. Vipin Vargas for off-air producing this episode.
2: And as always, we love hearing feedback. So email us at hello at coreimpodcast.com. Remember, opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the opinions of any of our affiliated
3: institutions. So, we end up sending the UPCR, and her ratio ends up being 1 trillion grams of protein (laughs) per day. 1 billion (laughs) (laughs) grams.
0: Okay. Well, maybe don't. Oh, sorry, I forgot to laugh. I apologize. Can you do it again? <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I want to laugh and back you up. Can you do it again?
2: Be funny, Marty.
0: All right. So it sounds like eight grams of proteinuria is too much for the classic diabetic nephropathy, and one gram of diabetes is not enough. So start over. What? Oh, sorry. What did which, I
2: you said one gram of diabetes, <laughs> which, is, which is kind of hilarious. <laughs>
3: <laughs> what does that even mean? At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea, innovation and partnership